mass shootings are defined as three or four or more people who are victims of gun violence. It's almost like you're saying, well, if it's three or four, that's serious. Now, if it's any less than that, it really doesn't make that much difference, you see? And that bothers me because every single person who is wounded or killed by a gun, that life is just as significant and important as, as if it's 30, one of the 32 at Tech or, or, or one of the 12 at Virginia Beach. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the senior pastor at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. Today, I am joined by David Carriens, who's going to be joining us on August 27th at uh, 2 o'clock at Williamsburg Baptist as part of our ongoing speaker series. David, do you want to say hey, hey to our audience? Well, hello. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation both to participate in the podcast and in your speaker program. We're delighted to welcome you. The topic, at least the tentative title, is um, it's a heavy topic, Mass Shootings, No Excuse for Silence. Uh, but we reached out to David because for our listeners who, who haven't heard his name, David is a leading expert on gun violence, uh, and so he's going to be coming to join us to talk about the ways in which we as uh, people of faith or a community of faith or, or even, you know, really anyone in the community of Williamsburg can play a part in ending the epidemic of gun violence in our country. David has many credentials, uh, served for 31 years as a CIA officer and a policy analyst. Don't want to give too much away from your background, but I'll ask you to introduce yourself a little bit more in depth in a minute. But uh, David is also serving on the Governor's Commission uh, to investigate the May 31st, 2019 mass shooting in Virginia Beach. David also happens to be the author of a number of books, uh, a couple of which are especially relevant to this topic, and surely we'll talk about those in a little bit too. But David, we, we are delighted to welcome you. And I'm wondering if you can maybe get us started by telling us a little bit about your background and where you're coming from. Well, uh, okay. I'm not sure how much how much you want. To my, too much of my background might put everyone to sleep. Uh, but uh, let me just say that that um, I was uh, born in Columbus, Ohio. Hmm. Um, I'm a native Ohioan, left there uh, to do some graduate work in California. Uh, I have uh, degrees in um, German and Polish history. No kidding. Yeah, I uh, I had started out to be a college professor, and um, I was sitting in, uh, on a not beautiful fall day in a seminar room with about three or four students and the professor, and we were talking about uh, German artisans in an 18th century small German town that I've never heard of, and I all of a sudden I thought, there's got to be more to life than this. <laughs> So, so <laughs> I did not want to spend my time <laughs> doing that. So I, I had, I had, as a student, I had, I had sold it. We had sold everything. I was married, moved my wife uh, to California, started the program. And um, so that afternoon uh, she picked me up after work when the, when the uh, seminar ended, I, I bought a, a bouquet of flowers from a street vendor, gotten our VW and handed them to her and said, I don't want to do this anymore. 
And she just looked at me and said, fine. Great. <laughs> uh, so I started, uh, uh, I, I should tell you, though, that to back up just a little bit, uh, that I've been around a long time. And uh, I was born shortly before um, the United States entered the Second World War. Wow. And, and so uh, that's what got me started. I remember as a three and four year old, I remember the newsreels, the radio broadcasts, the mm. food rationing. I remember all of this about the war. And I had a, an older brother who was fascinated by it. And I was his captive audience. Mm-hmm. And he used to talk with me about it. He used to show me the maps of the battles, and 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 we used to listen to rebroadcasts of, of BBC and the war and things things of that nature in the evening. And um, what as as a youngster, you can imagine after the war, as the camps opened up, uh, the the horror of that really had an impact on me. Hmm. And and uh, as a matter of fact, that's what started me out uh, to even as a child to look at and, and, and read about and think about how can a country that reached the height of uh, sophistication and culture uh, across the board, the science, the arts and everything, all of a sudden become prey to a monster that engages in wholesale genocide Hmm. and this was all this was reinforced because uh, even in elementary school i remember in the second grade we were told we were going to have a new student and he was a young man from hungary and we were going to go to a house he and he had been in a camp now the camp must have been a displaced persons camp because it was i think 1947 or 1948 so when when there were still so many people suffering in in those camps mm-hmm. but i remember that he was hungarian and we went he was in a hospital bed mm-hmm. and he couldn't speak he couldn't lift his head and and so he was the first time that i really came face to face as a youngster with, with, with someone like myself who was a victim of all of this. Hmm. And later, when I was getting ready to go to college, I went back to Columbus. My parents had moved to northern Ohio, and I went back to Columbus and was going to Ohio State. And um, I'd gone to take my placement tests, and President Eisenhower was, was due to give a talk. Hmm. My aunt lived in a, in a duplex. I was staying with her. And all of a sudden, this woman comes running up on the porch, banging on the door, banging on the door, saying the president's going to talk. And she looked absolutely panic stricken. And, and I turned to my aunt and I said, who is that? And she said, she is a Polish refugee. She was a concert violinist and was forced to play the violin violins at Auschwitz while people were being marched to the gas chambers. So I can see any, any, any kind of a talk from someone in a, a position of authority over a government was absolutely just setting her crazy. Mm. And, and so, uh, and some of my professors that I had in college were were refugees mm. 
from from the war. So that's that's really what got me started in in German and, and Polish history. Mm-hmm. And I, I majored in the period from 1871 German unification until 1939. I didn't want to I didn't want to study about the war. I wanted to study about how it how the war happened. What what led to it? Right. Right. And and somebody said to me one time when I told them that they said, well, well, did you find any answers? And I said, well, not really any <laughs> that I'm satisfied with, to be quite <laughs> truthful. But but that has gotten me that that uh, just from a, from a child, four or five years old, um, witnessing what I saw from a, from afar really set my whole life on the course that that it's been on. Wow. And when I decided to, that I didn't want to be a professor, I went to the, the, the uh, placement uh, office and, and uh, I said, look, I, I, need to get, I need to get a job and I'll, I'll talk with anybody. And uh, you can imagine the, the need for a German-Polish historian is next to zero. <laughs> oh. So I, would, I talk with anyone. And the only the only people who showed any interest were the CIA. No kidding. And they actually flew me from California to Washington twice for interviews. Wow. I I'll tell you it's a, I, what I think. I was at, I was at Berkeley, and this was during the anti-Vietnam War period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the recruiter probably never got anybody. You know, because the student's body was so anti-war, and of course the CIA was tarnished uh, with the with the war effort, and so here he has a student on the line, and I'm I'm convinced to this day that that the re- <laughs> that I made that man's career because he was able <laughs> able to say he rec- he recruited a student from the Berkeley campus in <laughs> of the anti-war demonstrations. Wow. So, <laughs> so anyway, that's that's probably more than you you. Uh, you ever really wanted to know about me, but, but, uh, I will tell you it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, in fact, one of a book that I'm, I'm going to be writing, I'm going to talk about the CIA and, um, uh, uh, and that's, it's going to be all about my, my life at the CIA. And it probably will not be a, a well, I'm sure it won't be a bestseller, uh, because it's not going to wash any dirty linen because I don't know any dirty linen. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So <laughs> as a matter of fact, but it is, I think it will talk about some extremely interesting things uh, that, that happened to me as an intelligence uh, analyst dealing, I dealt with Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's what I and that's that fit into my academic background right right so, yeah 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 and uh, so as a matter of fact my career I've, I I was 31 years as a staff employee but then I continued uh for another to 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 to, to what would it be an, an, another another 11 years as a contract so I actually have 42 years of working with the CIA. And what I did in those, those years was I taught intelligence and crime analysis and, and mm-hmm. analytic writing. That's, that's mm-hmm. what I did. Mm-hmm. And after, after 9-11, uh, the, de- the demand for people with my credentials just went through the ceiling. So that's why, if you noticed on my resume, I've taught all over the place because, there, frankly, there were not that many of us. Right. And, right. and 
and so in government, the uh, the Congress, in its infinite wisdom, dictated that that uh, the CIA approach to intelligence analysis and writing would be the standard throughout the U.S. government intelligence and law enforcement community. So that that's why why we were called on so heavily. And mm-hmm. I continue to teach overseas. You still do to this day. Uh, yeah, to this is yeah. As a matter of fact, we're waiting. I'm waiting right now to. Uh, I'm I'm going to be teaching for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the what's holding it up. <laughs> they have to wait till the dollar exchange gets better. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. No, I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, I was supposed to teach for them. Uh, about a month ago, and they said, "Look, you know, the the Canadian dollar has sunk so much, we can't afford it right now. We got we got to wait for the for the, <laughs> the exchange rate to improve." So, <laughs> what a weird world we live in. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's wonderful. Um. Well, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit then about you know how you pivoted from that to your. Um, interest and engagement with the question of gun violence and mass shootings in the United States. Well, actually, the my the career that I had um, really uh, enabled me uh, to to make that that move uh, very quickly and very easily. And and as mm-hmm. you know, we lost the uh, mother of my oldest grandchild at the first sh- school shooting here in, in Virginia, and it was the Appalachian School of Law, January 16th, uh, uh, 2000, uh, 2002. Mm. And the, you know, up until the, I, I, I was overseas when Columbine occurred. I was on assignment for the CIA, and I, w- I was in Sarajevo, and I can tell you, I just happened to be off work that day, and I was sitting in the apartment. We were, it was on a hillside overlooking the city when the news began to break over Armed Forces television. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, as a parent, how I felt. It, it it was it was absolutely devastating. I can to this day see the pattern of the carpet of the room. I can see mm-hmm. every detail of the view out the window. It and and I thought that I I really knew how devastating it was. And let me tell you, you don't until it's a family member. And the only reason that I can do this and, and, and work with the, with this, with this subject is because Angie was not my daughter. Hmm. You see, there's just ever so bit of a, a, um, a distance between me and Angie. She did not come into our lives until she met my <clears throat> my son in college, right? She she was a she was a, a young woman at the time, but but she was. I could go on and on about it. And as I said to you, today is 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 kind is a noteworthy day because my first book mm-hmm. was about the shooting at the Appalachian School of Law. It's called "The Murder of Angela Dales," and it's just been reissued. And this time it is called The Murder of Angela Dales 21 Years Later, mm-hmm. in which the, I take the original book and I add uh, a, a, a chapter on, on what has happened since then and what has happened to me. And I also change the introduction and a little bit of the content. But my publisher 
thought it was it's a significant enough book. She is the one who said we really want to put this out, and we want to we want you to bring it up to date. Mm-hmm. So as I'm, uh, that has that has just uh, gone alive on Amazon within the last 24 hours. So wow. And by the way, I need to mention, and I, I want your listeners to understand this, uh, I do not take any money mm-hmm. for any of, I've, I've written two books, one on that shooting and one on the Virginia Tech shooting, and all of the money goes to charity. The money for the Angie book goes to a shelter for battered women in Warsaw, Virginia. Oh, wow. Called, yeah, called that. Yes, that's, that's just my town. <laughs> that is exactly right. And if you're familiar then with the Haven. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, that's where the money goes for for Wonderful. all of that book, and the money for the Virginia Tech book uh, goes to the Michael Poley Jr. Scholarship Fund. Mm-hmm. It was his father who approached me about writing the book mm-hmm. and 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 doing this. The 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 Tech families, uh, when that occurred, I offered them anything that I had, including a file cabinet full of research. On, on school shootings and things of that nature. And, um, and they were familiar with the book. And several of the families wanted to know if I would do exactly the same thing, analyze that and get their, they felt their story was not being told. Right. And, and they wanted to get it out. So that's, that's why the Virginia Tech book was written. And, and as I said, the money from that goes to in memory of, of Michael Poley Jr., who was killed in the German class mm. at, Virginia, at Virginia Tech. Yeah, I have I have friends who were students at Virginia Tech when that shooting occurred. Oh it's, yeah, you know, continued it's, to be. It's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 amazing when I I will go someplace, and they'll uh, someone will see those two books, and uh, there'll either be someone who says, oh. I was in Grundy, Virginia at the time of that shooting, or my family's from there, or I knew her family, or and the same thing with with Virginia Tech. My, you know, my child was a was a, in the same dormitory as to where the first double homicide. It almost every time I do a talk, hmm. somebody in the audience who has a connection to one of those two shootings. That's unbelievable. I mean. Yeah. But speaks to, you know, the 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 ways in which it really is an epidemic in this country that you know so well, many. It, well, it is, and and you know, it's one of the points I make in this in the the latest edition of the book about Angie, is that when I wrote that book, I never dreamed that twenty one years later, we would have this epidemic of gun violence, and I would be sitting on the commission. Mm. the governor's commission to investigate the mass shooting at Virginia beach where 12 people were killed and four were wounded. Right. You know, I, I just, uh, it's, it's amazing. But going back something that, that you said you asked earlier, and I want, I want to talk about just a little bit. And that is how did my career enable the transition? And Mm -hmm. I can tell you exactly how. As an intelligence analyst, mm-hmm. where you deal with a lot of deception, I knew immediately that we were being lied to by people in authority, university, law school officials, uh, by, by police, by people in the medical profession, and I knew it, 
And part of, of my healing, because it, that, that became intolerable. Mm. Uh, and this is one thing I, I, I think your readers need to, or your listeners need to understand. And that is the one thing that the victims of these shootings need is the truth. Mm-hmm. The truth helps in the healing. Mm. And that is the last thing that they get. And sometimes they never get it. And that's part of the reason why you have these lawsuits and why you have the fighting mm-hmm. the part of the part of the families because they know they're being lied to. Hmm. And then that was the case in those in, in both. Uh, in fact, both of those books. Uh, well, the first one on, on Angie. Um, I had a, a lawyer go over it. And. Uh, we had a publisher that was going to print it and he, the publisher wanted to back out at the last minute. And I had the lawyer write a note to the publisher saying there is nothing in the book that is not factual and everything, every assertion can be backed up by evidence. Hmm. So the, the publisher then said, okay, but I got an email from the publisher's lawyer saying, remember if there's a lawsuit, you're the one that gets sued, not us. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and uh, my answer to that was, well, I, well, if I get sued for writing this book, it will probably make it a, a national bestseller, and I'll use that money to pay for the lawyers. That's right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I said this. I had the same thing. People thought I, I was going to be sued. Wow. I could, I could go on and on about that. Some high-placed wow. lawyers in Richmond told me that I would be sued for that Virginia Tech book. It never happened. Right. Well, it does. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that so much that the importance of the truth and understanding, you know, nothing can undo the events, but people, I hear you saying, do have a deep desire to understand why something happened and how it right. happened. And, um, and then maybe to be able to take steps, concrete steps to prevent things like that from happening in the future. That's, that's right. And, and if you don't tell the truth and if you don't get to the bottom of it, then you can't take the necessary steps uh, to try and help prevent future right. shootings. Sure. Well, can you, I mean, it, it sounds dumb for me to ask this, but can you sort of set this up? I mean, how much of a problem are mass shootings in the United States? I mean, we hear about one, it seems like every month or week or something, but you know. Well, it's actually much more than I don't have the statistics in front of you. I mean, in front of me, but but um, uh, it, it's it's at the rate I I I I, for, I forget the number of people in the state of Virginia alone who are killed every day by guns, oh and God. the num the number of people uh, who are killed every week by mass shootings and the mass shootings. And I have, I, I, and I use the, the words mass shooting and, and it's the title of my talk, but I do have a problem with that because somehow mass shootings are defined as three or four or more people who are victims of gun violence. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're saying, well, if it's three or four, that's serious. Now, if it's any less than that, it really doesn't make that much difference, you see? And that bothers me. Yeah. Because every single person who is wounded or killed by a gun, that life is just as significant and important 
as as if it's thirty one of the thirty two at Tech or, right. or or one of the twelve at Virginia Beach. Right. Uh, so I have, but 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 that's the way we approach it, and 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 I I understand. But the, part of the problem with that is that we have become so insulated against the horrors of these shootings that that many of, of mass shootings that occur are are they don't even make the evening news crawl. And, you know, I I go back and I periodically look at the uh, newspapers in in my home state in Ohio, and just within the last week. Nine people were shot outside a a nightclub in Cincinnati. Mm. That only made the news in Cincinnati, Ohio, and mm. it's nine people. It's it's just not that, horrifying enough, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that, that's 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 exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, and and it, um, I, I mean, it's 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 incredible the way we have moved. And part of it, in terms of public attitudes, and part of it, I, th- I think people are are so horrified by it that they want to turn it off. And I've I've had that. I've 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 had book signings, and I remember one I had in Northern Virginia, <clears throat> where a woman came up to me and she said, "I saw that you were going to be here, and and I just want to tell you, please keep." doing what you're doing, but I cannot buy your book. I cannot read it. I have children in college. I simply cannot. I cannot address that subject or face it, but please keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Mm. And, wow. and, and so you have that. You have a large number of really good people for whom the subject is so horrific because they have children it, that in effect they're, they're running away from it. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it. Every time there's a school shooting now, it's you know, it's gut wrenching to me to send my kids to school the next day. But absolutely, I think that every every parent has that reaction to it. They you recoil. You just you know you drop them off and pray. You know, I hope I get to pick them up this afternoon, and I hope that they're intact. That's that's and isn't that terrible? Or the fact that your children now have to go through active shooter drills. Mm-hmm. Yep, we do. Yep, and they talk about it sometimes. You know, yeah. like playing hide and seek from the bad guys. I have young kids, so they don't really understand all of the yeah the, nuances yeah. of what they're doing. But yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah, and it's 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 uh, <clears throat> it's just uh, I, I I hate to sound trite, but you know, it's a terrible commentary on where we are right now. I th- yeah, I think the like fact that we've become numb to it, and also you know, decent desensitized and maybe um feel helpless like you know what can i do like you know this is just the world we live in or at least this is just the country we live in you know like this is this just as normal so you know pray to god that it's not me well one of the things you 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 mentioned to me you asked me um about uh what was sort of an an aha moment Hmm. in all Hmm. of this for me and i mentioned it earlier uh and and that aha moment has to do with with being lied to. Hmm. And and uh, I have seen this, and and uh, time and time again. For example, with in, with the case of of um, both the Virginia Tech shooting and the Virginia Beach shooting. Uh, <clears throat> what did both 
what did both do? The Virginia Tech and the city of Virginia Beach both hired private firms to write a report. Hmm. Now, these firms exist off of contracts from government and private business, they're security firms. Hmm. I would pose this question to you and your listeners. If Tridata, the firm who wrote the port report on Virginia Tech, or Hilliard Heinz, who wrote the report on Virginia Beach, if either one of them had written a report saying that either the university or the, or the city was culpable, they were guilty of gross negligence and therefore are liable to tens of millions of dollars, do you think they would ever get a contract again? No. Okay. No. You know, and then so, and this is what's insidious because the commission that I'm on was not formed until almost two years after the shooting. Okay. Mm. Uh, so I've heard people or people have asked me, well, why do we need a, another commission when we have Hilliard Heights? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you see how insidious it is. Right. Right. And, and if you read the reports, for example, the Virginia Tech report, somebody referred to it as the gold standard. The one that was, no, there are 40 some errors hmm. report. Hmm. I could go on and on. We could have a whole podcast right. about That's the problems right. in that report. And it cost the taxpayers nearly three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. And in the case of, of, of um, Hilliard Heights, um, a lot of effort went into it, but an awful lot of it is just standard boilerplate that you could get out of a textbook or any book on security. This is what you need to do rather than analyze what was wrong. What is needed really is an, is a, an investigation in every sense of the word mm -hmm. and you let the chips fall where they may. And I told this the first day of, or the second, the second meeting of the uh, of the the commission on on uh, Virginia Beach, and and they went. The chairman went around the room and asked each one of us about our goals and and how we were approaching it. And I said my comment was this: I said I believe this commission has two audiences, two major audiences. One is the legislature and the governor, which set us up, and secondly are the victims and the family. And when we are through with this, we have to be able to look both of them in the eye, particularly the families, and say, we did the best that we could. And, and if our investigation shows that the shooting at Virginia Beach could not have been prevented, it was not foreseeable, we have to be able to tell the families that with a clear conscience. Hmm. Okay. But if Virginia Beach is culpable, we have to we have to say they are guilty of gross negligence. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's where the problem comes. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Because <clears throat> everyone likes to think about, well, what can we do to prevent them in the future? And um and, and frankly, where the commission is right now, we just had a, a meeting yesterday, and uh, there are a lot of good points that are coming out of the commission 
on what can be done. And, and, and hopefully the legislature will adopt some mandatory measures uh, to help prevent them. But what's not come out so far, what's not being done on the commission is a thorough investigation of what went wrong. Hmm. And I pointed out yesterday that the, we have seven charges and, and at least two of the charges, one of them has to do with a thorough investigation of the killer and his background. Mm -hmm. and, and we haven't even touched that yet. Wow. So, so we are nowhere near finished. Y'all have some work. work. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and. <clears throat> so you mentioned, and the subtitle of one of the books, uh, a question of accountability, and then the other, Virginia Tech, make sure it doesn't get out. What I'm gathering is that, you know, on one level, you're looking at the, the sort of like specific, um, very contextual nature of these tragedies and, uh, you know, who's, who's culpable or how they could have been prevented. Yeah. I feel like so much of the sort of national conversation is a much more macro level, uh, you know, conversations about gun rights versus, um, you know, reasonable gun law, gun laws and gun restrictions and stuff like that. How does that sort of intersect with your work? Well, first of all, I, I, I think, and you pointed out, out um, the subject of, of guns has become so polarized mm -hmm. and so emotional. It is really hard. Uh, it, it's hard to have a conversation with many, many people about it because, because emotions immediately kick in. And what I've found, because I've, when, I, when I do these book signings, is that um, and, uh, there are people who try and bait me, you know, come up oh, with this sort of stuff. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, so one of the things they'll come up and, and their, their first question is, well, tell me, what do you think of the Second Amendment? And I say, I strongly support the Second Amendment, mm. which I do. Mm -hmm. Okay, <clears throat> And I say, let me tell you what my position is and then tell me if you can support them. Um, first of all, I support legislation to keep guns out of the hands of people who are deemed a threat to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. I support legislation to keep guns out of the hands of domestic and foreign terrorists. Mm -hmm. I support legislation to keep guns out of the hands of individuals who have been convicted of violent crimes, especially crimes that involve weapons of any kind. In other words, I support, I, while I support the Second Amendment, I oppose gun control. I don't want to control any law-abiding citizens' guns. I don't want to, you know, hunting is a part of the American fabric. Mm -hmm. I don't want to touch anything on that. I will say that if you are a hunter and you need an AK-47, perhaps you might consider another sport. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Bad aim or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, but, but those are places to start. And, and also the problem is multifaceted. Right. And, and they're, they're by definition, you could say that, that each one of these killers 
if you're going to go out and kill a, a bunch of people, you are mentally ill. There is something mm -hmm. wrong with you. Mm -hmm. so the, the mental Ill, illness equation is part of it. And what we have done in this country is, uh, even though there has been rhetoric after each one of these shootings that we're going to increase the money, what we do is we, rather than have the, the mental uh, health facilities run by, uh, by the, uh, the governments, the state or the local governments, we give them the private organizations. The minute profit enters into it, hmm. that's a problem. Okay? And <clears throat> this is what these private companies do. Rather than get someone uh, with degrees in psychology or, or psychiatry and things of that nature, uh, they will get very good mind, uh, you know, very, I'm sorry, very well-intentioned people. Mm -hmm. And maybe at most they have a year or two of college. Mm -hmm. So they, they pay them a fraction of what they pay with the person in the degree. But yes, they can say, yes, we have a person who has some training in mm -hmm. psychology. Okay, you're not getting the quality. Mm -hmm. I, I tell the story, I had an interesting experience. Um, uh, Michael Poley, senior, the father of the man, the father, the man who asked me to write the book, mm -hmm. we were invited to speak at uh, Kane University in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. on, on gun violence. Mm -hmm. And boy, was I pleased. The auditorium was filled wow. with, with students. And, and one of the points that I'll just, just quickly make is we told the students that they have a role to play in preventing this, mm -hmm. that they are the ones who see their fellow students. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who see the signs and indications that a person is under stress. And mm -hmm. you, are, you are not ratting on someone if you go and ask a counselor to try and get this person, bring them in and try and get them some help and try and find out things such as of that, there is a role right. that you have to play because right. you see these youngsters every day. Well, anyway, so <laughs> when we were through uh, with it, um, the, the uh, professor who invited us up was an absolutely great woman. Uh, she has an, a movement on that campus called Be the Change. Hmm. And, and she said, hey, how would you like to come with us tonight? Well, we go down and we're going to do some, some work with the homeless in Newark. And, and I said, uh, I, I was in a motel by myself. Mike had to get back to his wife. I said, sure, I'll go along. So we met in the student union and there was an assembly line making peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, <laughs> an apple and a bottle of water. And we ground bagged this and we had boxes and boxes of this. So we get in cars and we drive into downtown Newark, New Jersey, mm -hmm. right at the Newark train station. It's the heart of the city. It's a big plaza. And we just parked the cars in the middle of the plaza. And I said, aren't we supposed to go to a parking lot? They said, oh, no, no, just park it here. They're not going to buy. So here's all this traffic around. We just get out of the car in the middle of this plaza, go into the train station which is where all of the mentally ill people in the area go to get warm because mm. there is no shelter. Mm. And once a week, this woman and the students bring these sandwiches down. And so I, we walked around and, and we handed them out. And 
the place as there are tons of police standing around the whole time. Well, I'm a, I'm a big man. I'm six feet two. Okay. So I stood out in the crowd and uh, finally, just as we're finishing, a police officer came up to me and he said, sir, I'm sorry. Are you in charge of this? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, you can't do this. You're not supposed to do this. You're not allowed to just, you if you want to distribute food to these people, you have to take them outside. Oh, wow. And I said, well, right over there, you see that little lady over there, uh-huh. the person in charge, you're going to have to go tell her that, not me. I, okay. So they go over and she nods her head and listens. And so I got in the car and I said, oh, this is too bad. We have, you know, I'm not, you're not going to be able to do this anymore inside the train station. And he said, oh no, this is a ritual we go through every week. legally we're not supposed to do it the police let us do it and then they come up and tell us we can't do it next we show up next week same thing happens so every week but the point and i said well what about these people where do they get help and she said well new jersey privatized its its mental health program Mm -hmm. so they give these people a voucher to get on a bus and go someplace and to find, you know, to, to, to where the clinics, where these private clinics are. These people are, are not mentally capable of doing that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> this system, I believe the system of mental health cannot be run for profit. Okay. Um, it, 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 this is something that I think the, that the government should do. And going back in the 1980s, when we cut back on mental health, if you if you you're you're too young to remember this, but I was in Washington D.C. when it happened, and they closed St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital. And the next day, there were people sleeping on the streets in downtown Washington D.C. because they had been turned out of the shelter. Wow. And there was no no place for them to go, and they were sleeping on grates. Mm-hmm. We 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 simply, uh, and this gets also to the role of churches, and 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 what they can do in mm-hmm. in offering uh, a refuge for people. <clears throat> but there's a limit to what what churches can do. But the churches, members of churches, can certainly put pressure on elected officials. Hmm. Uh, to move move a, in a different direction in mental health, and you ask me, and uh, and your your questions again about about the role of churches, and and let me just say that the role of of churches and, and a a pastor such as yourself is very difficult hmm. because you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, sure, but you, but you know that in your congregation you have all sorts of political views. Absolutely. And and and, and that's that's the strength of the church. And the right. system, okay. But mm. it is also a weakness. Mm. Because uh, uh, because it ties your hands. And I I think that the church churches cannot do as much as they should do. And uh, let me tell you a little story about that. Please. We, we, were young, we were a young couple, my wife and I, with two small children at the time of the Poor People's March on Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. Okay, which was 
headline news and there was all sorts of concern. All these people are going to be sleeping on the mall and the, the trash and where are the toilets and, you know, all, all, and, and they're legitimate concerns. Well, we were members of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, which is Peter Marshall's church. Okay. Reverend George Doherty uh, was uh, the, the chief pastor. <clears throat> he opened the church to some of these poor people. <clears throat> we gave them a place to sleep. Mm-hmm. We gave them food. Do you know he lost a huge percent of the congregation? Not surprised. And, and they, what they did, and, and you know the congregation that he lost? He lost the people with the money. Mm. He lost. He lost the the uh, a lot. He said. He told us. He said, "You know, these are people that I, I've married them. I've baptized their children. I've some of them. I've I've buried their family members, and I opened the church to give refuge to these people. And they have left the church. They they will not have anything more to do with with this this church. And so here he was. He he's." He's he's loses a large portion mm. of, of the congregation, and and um, I, I, he, I, as far as I'm concerned, he made the absolutely right Christian decision mm-hmm. to do that, and and in a way, in terms of of the spirituality of the church, they were better off. Mm-hmm. Okay? That, that they had to me, they had they had a congregation that was putting in practice what I believe are some of the basic tenets of Christianity that existing in the society around it. So, right. so I, 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 I would like to see churches speak out more in, in terms of what can be done from mental health uh, to keeping, you know, there, there's really no reason for people to have automatic weapons unless mm-hmm. you have an, a, a real excuse for it. What would that excuse be? I'm just curious. Uh, well, as far as I know, the only possible excuse that I can see is that you are some sort of a collector. Hmm. And uh, I know in, in this book, that's, I keep going back to my book, so excuse me. Oh, please. Uh, we, yeah. But in the book that's coming out, the Angie book, one of the things that I added to it, I added a, a chapter and then an appendix. And the appendix is... Uh, is a list of the 10 measures Australia put in place. And one of them is to buy a gun of any kind. Mm -hmm. You have to state why you need it. Oh. You have to come in and there has to, you have to fill out a form and state why you need it. They have completely banned automatic weapons. Mm Mm-hmm. They have not banned guns, you know, rifle, hunting rifles, thing, things of that that nature. Mm-hmm. But you do have to be licensed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard it said, and I think it's true. Some some people will say, "Well, well, um, well." The, the the point is that that uh, they'll say, "Well, guns don't kill." Well, neither do cars, but we license them and the drivers. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. And the same thing. Guns in and of themselves don't kill. It's mm-hmm. in the hands of certain people. So therefore, you license the gun and, and, and you license the owner. I also think 
that gun owners should be be required to buy insurance. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And okay. So if and and the the greater the power of the weapon, the bigger the insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This would dissuade some people from buying it altogether. No, that's right. That, that's that's right. That's yeah. right. And 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 again, I do think you should have you should have to have any gun that is was developed as a weapon of war. You need to state why you have it, why you need it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because those are designed to kill people, right? Not deer, as you said. Or that's, at, that's exactly deer. that's exactly right. How about? And David, I'm woefully ignorant when it comes to current gun laws and so forth. But I, I wonder about like background checks and waiting periods. Uh, you know, oh, I think all of those are very good. Absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely. Background checks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have sort of a hit and miss on background checks, and it's interesting. Uh, we don't really follow up on that. The uh, Cho, the killer at Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. He bought some of his guns at a at a gun store, I believe, in Roanoke. Mm-hmm. And the gun dealer did exactly what he was supposed to do with Virginia law, and that is, he did the background check. Mm-hmm. Well, Cho had been committed to a mental institution. He had been deemed a threat to himself and others, and he his name was sent to the police to put on the list to ban him from buying guns. The police had never gotten around to add his name to the list. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So, yes. so right there, right there is, is a weakness in, in the system, which tells me that that was a very low priority and probably still is a very low priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now, the other thing is, of course, that, that, that uh, <clears throat> you can still buy guns through the mail, and the, and he got a couple of his guns through the mail. Well, okay, you buy them from a state that doesn't have the the laws and the regulations, right? You know, so I it's 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 not a simple problem. It's highly emotional, um, but there there are so many things that can be done, right? To, that will begin to make a difference. You know, I appreciated that you said that the strength or one of the strengths of churches is their diversity, which some people would see as a weakness. And you said, yeah, rightfully so, it is a weakness in some ways. But in our polarized context, I wonder if we churches, at least the ones that can tolerate diversity, uh, like Williamsburg Baptist Church, have a role to play in fostering honest and open dialogue. Because I think you're right. I think that especially at the political level, uh, when it comes to right wing or left wing talking points, they're sort of looking for like, what's the one lever we can pull that will stop this? And my sense is that it's either, you know, assault weapon ban on the one side or mental health, you know, something on the other. But when really it is going to be a... It's a combination of a whole bunch of things. Plurality of measures that are required. And we have to be able to bring all sorts of creative ideas to the table and look at the research and listen and you know well, we, what we need i i i think we almost need a marshall plan hmm, hmm. you know because, because it, it, about that 
Yeah, well, you know, and, and the Marshall Plan in terms of of uh, what the U.S. adopted after the end of World War II to rebuild Europe, a society mm. that had been completely destroyed, and and so we rebuilt on all sorts of, of levels: industry, uh, infrastructure, uh, education, social systems, everything. It was an, an across-the-board, top-to-bottom program, and we we need that sort of a of a program to deal with mental health. Uh, I mean, with 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 gun violence, mm. and one of the things. Um, that just ha- that that has happened on the commission, and this is a place where members of a congregation can help with this. Um, a, a gentleman by the name of, of Joe Samaha, who I've dealt with, he lost his his daughter at at Virginia Tech. He's been very active in terms of of getting help for victims of sun of gun violence. They set up at Virginia Tech a foundation. Hmm. And and the foundation, uh, other than having some seed money from the state of Virginia, does not take any taxpayer dollar. It's it's a and it's a fund that was set up. They identified 167 people who were victims of the Virginia Tech shooting. This is parents, uncles, cousins, brothers, sisters, all of that. And what this fund does is it guarantees these people full medical coverage in perpetuity. Wow. And, and the reason I say that is some people will say, well, it's been two years since the shooting. They've got to get over it. Absolutely not. There are some people who will never fully recover, never fully recover. Sure. They will always need the psychiatric have some help. What I'm getting at is our commission had Joe Samaha talk to us, and he went over the whole thing. Well, we voted unanimously to send a letter to the legislation, to the Virginia legislature, to not only set up a similar foundation for the Virginia Beach families, but to have something in place that could be extended to all victims of mass shootings in the state of Virginia. Wow. And you know what happened? What's that? The head, the delegate Knight, who is from Virginia Beach, he is the chairman of the Virginia Appropriations Committee, opposed to it. It was never brought to the floor for a vote. Okay? Yeah. So here you have a man who's made a fortune as a hog farmer. Mm. He represents an area where this mass shooting occurred. Mm-hmm. The commission unanimously says the legislature should set this up, and one man blocks it. Wow. So what can a church do? You can pick up the phone and call mm-hmm. Delegate Knight's office. Mm-hmm. And I have the number for you if you want. Well, we'd love to share some links and so forth on our website uh, or podcast page or whatever. So maybe we can we can correspond via email and you can send me some. Okay, I, w- I, was, I will do that. I yeah, will do that. Great. You know, I've I've heard it said. I used to teach a leadership course at the Baptist Theological Seminary for pastors or pastors in training, and one of the the nuggets of wisdom I picked up from that course is. There's a tendency for people and organizations, they won't change until it's too painful not to. 
Yeah. And I sort of have that, you know, we were talking about churches, like churches aren't going to change their pick, you know, music style or color the carpet or, then you know, until it's too painful not to, uh, it sort of speaks to the intractability or the, um, maybe the inertia of, you know, systems, but it's hard to think about that in light of this problem, this epidemic, yeah. No. What What is it going to take to to change? Like, how much pain must people suffer? I, I'll be honest. After you know, one of the recent shootings, a school shooting, I felt angry as a parent. I was, you know, we send people to Washington. We send people to our state legislature. Yeah. Democrats and Republicans and independents alike. You know, I don't care. You know, what party they belong to, but we send them to places of power to make decisions and stop things like this. And so yeah. as a parent, I was just angry because, you know, I just want yeah. them to do something. And my sense is that the overwhelming response is nothing. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a, one of the very sad things is there is a tendency of, of people in authority, people that, that we trust and we put in positions to make uh, decisions for us that when these tragedies occur, well, first of all, they hope it won't happen on their watch because they don't want to address it. Right. Secondly, they put the institution or organization above human life. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that happened at Virginia Tech. It happened at the Appalachian School of Law. It's happening at Virginia Beach. It's they're hap- worried they're going to get sued. Of course, they're yeah. you know, sad, but they're worried that they're going to... Well, and the, and and quite honestly, uh, after after Virginia Tech, I met with Joe uh, Samaha's uh, cousin, who was a, a lawyer in, in Northern, was at the time a lawyer in Northern Virginia, and we had a long talk. And he looked at me and he said, "You know, um, I don't think we will ever be able to get away from these mass shootings until it becomes profitable to do so." Mm. That is a pretty startling and disturbing assertion. And the more you think about it, the more you think it's true. Mm -hmm. Again, putting profit over human life. Hmm. Hmm. Which we see in a whole host of ways in this context. And I I think that that may in in part explain your anger over Uvalde. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what it was, yeah. The yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's. I will tell you, uh, I I do not seek out any of these victims. Um, all of my writing, except for for dealing with my family, everything that I have done comes in response to being asked to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are people who seek out these victims and their vultures. They mm-hmm. want to make money off of them. Mm-hmm. And you are invading people's privacy at the very worst time. Mm-hmm. If someone needs your help, in fact, my wife um, did not want me to write the Virginia Tech book because of my health. Because I, I get, when I wrote the, the book on Angie, I was so emotionally distressed that I had to keep a bucket next to me because I was vomiting while I was mm. writing. Mm. And she said, look, this is going to kill you. And I said to her, you know, when a father calls you and says, I need your help, I can't say no. I simply can't. 
but I would never have called him and said, right. let me right. do it. Okay. Right. And, 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 and the way I lived in a bit of fear, because uh, I also got a call from, uh, you remember the, the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting and, and some, mm-hmm. there's some others I've been, been involved with. And I have been afraid that I would get a call from a parent of Sandy Hook or Uvalde because I, I can hardly handle those subjects. I cannot handle the murder of, of these little children. Oh, it's got, I mean, I'm just not psychologically yeah. emotionally strong enough. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it dealing with what I deal is, um, stressful enough. Yeah. David, um, I'm, I'm watching the time, uh, but I'm wondering if you can tell us in like 30 seconds or a minute, like what, what would be the ideal, like, what's your vision for your work? an ideal world? Is it a world without gun violence? Well, well, uh, yeah, but I, I, frankly, I don't think that's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't think we will, we will ever find a way to completely eliminate it. I think we will, we, my goal would be to get it to the point where it is a rarity, mm-hmm. where when one of these things happens, it's shocking. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to that. That's yeah. my goal. And I really hope that, that, that my writing and my, my talking can make some difference. I know that, I know that I've, I've won a few battles, mm-hmm. but, but frankly, I feel like I'm losing the war. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, my sense is that we all have a role to play and we all have to figure out what that role is. And, um, my hope is that the tides will turn sooner or later. And I'm far from an expert on this subject, but I'm so grateful for your time and talking to us today. Really excited about your talk on August 27th at 2 p.m. at Williamsburg Baptist Church. We'll be delighted to host you for a discussion and conversation, and we'll let you know folks lob some questions at you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. Uh, listen, podcast listeners, if you're still listening, you can find out more about uh, David at DaveCarians.com. Is that right? And we'll put that link on our on our yeah. podcast so people can find you and find out more about your book. And spell my last name because they'll never get it. Yes, Dave, C-A-R-I-E-N-S.com. Yeah. <laughs> yep, good. And you can find out more about our speaker series at WilliamsburgBaptist.com and more info about David there as well, and links to his website too. So David, thank you so much again. Looking forward to seeing you in person in just a little over two weeks now. And I'm looking forward to it. Good. Thanks so much. See you then. Take care.